Maggie Gregory is head of school at Fusion Academy, a unique private school here in Connecticut that focuses on personalized learning plans and motivating their students by creating emotionally safe learning environments. Something that, as we've deduced over two seasons of our podcast, isn't always available to students with anxiety or emotional challenges. Today, we're discussing social emotional learning. SEL is a crucial part of not just traditional education, but human development. Through social emotional learning, we acquire and apply knowledge, skills, and attitudes to live well-rounded lives. It helps students develop healthy personal identities, manage and regulate their emotions, and make responsible and logical decisions. Welcome to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the academic challenges that students struggling with anxiety face. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. Maggie has been with Fusion for nearly seven years and as head of school works closely with each family and her team to design the most individualized and engaging program for every child. For over the last decade, Maggie's experience and focus on small group education has served in developing the relationships needed to unlock the immense potential in every student. Welcome to the show. It's uh, great to have you uh, here today. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Tell me a little bit about uh, Fusion Academy and uh, what you do there. Sure. So I'm the head of school at our Greenwich location, Fusion Academy Greenwich. Uh, we are very spoiledly sitting right on the waterfront down in downtown Stamford, right on the right on the water on the cove. In addition to daydreaming outside of my window, I am the head of school. Um, we are a sixth through twelfth grade program, fully accredited. Uh, and we are a one-to-one -one school, and at some point that scares people, but it also excites them, where one-to-one -one is one teacher, one student for each academic class. We pair that with what we call our homework cafe. Homework cafe is when students complete their homework here on campus out among their peers. So there's a lot of organic peer mentoring that comes from that. We have a really great community of students and learners, so they complete their homework there so that by the time they leave for the day, all their homework is done and they are welcome to go on to their outside activities outside of school. Um, we really stress a, a three-part education. So we pay attention to the academics, of course, but then also social and emotional learning. So we're working on all three of those pieces. You're, you're certainly preaching to the choir with the one-on-one -on -one, um, education. I, I was a teacher for you know, 15 years in the private school circuit, and that's where you have very low classroom sizes, but it's amazing the kids can still get lost in the cracks. When I taught kids to write, it was one-on-one. -on -one. Like it was the conference time that they, that they spent with me um, and the time outside of the classroom. And I just, I, you can just accomplish infinitely more as an instructor in a one-on-one -on -one environment. So on Fusion's website, your unique methodology is outlined in three steps. Love, motivate, teach. Could you unpack that for us? Sure. So we actually take a look at it from, uh, it's actually a triangle, right? So at the base of the triangle, we have love. We will, we can't do anything until we have a relationship between teacher and student. They have to feel that love in the classroom. Right. And, and Alex, you mentioned that you were an English teacher and that's, you're speaking my language when you say that, that's, that's my background as well. And when you can establish with a student that mutual relationship, I typically have students come in the 
they either hate English or they hate math for some reason. And it's not necessarily that they hate the actual class of it. It's the content. Maybe there's an avoidance there. There's something difficult. But if you can establish that relationship and start with the foundation of the classroom is love and that mutual respect and understanding, then comes the next pillar of motivate, then comes to teach. We have to start with that. We have to lay that groundwork when we're working with these students. It's going to be skills that they use for the rest of their life. It's empathy. It's resilience. It's all of those necessary skills that start right there in the love and understanding piece of our teachers and our students before they even get onto the content of it. So English is a, a great example because if you can get to know your student as a person and what they care about, the books in which you select, the writing assignments that you select will, will matter to them. They recognize that you took the time to come up with subject matter and consider their opinion to then ingrain a love of learning as well. So once you start with that partnership and that relationship and that understanding of I'm going to take into consideration the things that you like and the things that you'll want to learn about and you can become genuinely curious in our classroom in this safe space, then we'll move on to the mentoring and then we'll move on to the teaching. Totally. That's such a good point. I, I would say that's probably like the most foundational educational point. If I could, if I could convey one thing to parents that's important about teaching, it's exactly what you said. That relationship with the kid is everything. Could you give me uh, an example of how you would teach uh, social emotional learning? Sure. So, I mean, we teach it in, a, a, in many different respects. Every student that comes in, we have our school-wide learner outcomes. And within the outcomes that we want for our students, are one of them is emotionally secure, resourceful, critical thinkers, and compassionate. So those are the four school-wide learner outcomes that we have. And it's very important to notice that 50% of those outcomes of the four are compassionate and emotionally secure. In addition to being resourceful and an independent critical thinker, we need to be emotionally secure and compassionate to our peers. Uh, it's what we're thriving for and what we set goals for with our students to make sure that they're not just focused on their academics. They're not just focused on the way in which they grow, but how their community grows as well. So when we talk about social emotional learning, we require in Greenwich our students to take a course on social thinking. Um, and we call it our community minds course. And the reason that we pick middle school for it to be a requirement, students in high school can take it as well, but we consider it um, a requirement for our middle school students because they're navigating such a difficult developmental time in their lives where they need to be working on their self-awareness. I'm thinking of you, thinking of me, and how am I coming off? And is that giving you the message that I want you to receive? our social awareness, tying into the same thing. How am I coming off and, and what are you picking up from me? Mm. Our self-management, our self-advocacy skills, the relationship skills that we need to navigate, making friends and how to, how to work with students that, or students or peers or siblings that you have a hard time conversing with. The middle school program, the social thinking program that we have when we are in a place where the students can feel that mutual respect, that love that we talked about before, that foundation, they're far more open to exploring things like social thinking, mutual respect and self-management and social awareness when they know that the person on the other side of the class respects and understands them and loves them. Mm. I'm curious too, um, how has the pandemic sort of affected those skills? I mean, have you noticed 
deficits? Um, if so, uh, you know, is it at certain age levels? Is, it, is there a, a pattern to it? Absolutely. The pandemic has impacted every student we have on campus. In some respect or another, it's trauma, and they process trauma in different ways. And they're looking to their parents to be modeling resiliency and modeling this uncertain time for them and, and how to navigate it when it's very difficult for everyone. You know, yeah. how, how can you see we... see me wincing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've never done this before. You know, nothing right. even remotely close to this. So when we go back a whole year, I can't believe it's going to be a whole year on the 13th that we shut our doors, this endless loop of March, right? Um, <laughs> but when we talk about the pandemic and just how sudden it was for our kids, I think in the beginning, our kids said, okay, this is what I have to do. My school is going to be online for now. The good thing for us, the silver lining for us, is it was still the same teachers meeting with the same students. So it was still one-to-one. -one. They still had the full attention of their mm -hmm. teacher in the classroom. So we were almost in the beginning, the one thing that stayed stable for them in madness. Mm, yeah. We pick up very quickly. It was actually very fortunate for us. We moved into our spring break. We had everything. All of our teachers came and got what they needed, not knowing how long this was going to last. But we had our materials and we picked up right away on Zoom. So there was no lagging time between um, having to recreate a model and figure out distance learning. We switched to Zoom and our teachers still met with their students one to one. So for that, in the beginning, it was almost like, OK, I have my routine. I'm going to see a familiar face outside of my family it's going to be a little difficult because I might be working next to my siblings who are also in class, but at another school, which is bizarre for right. them. But then what tended to happen was the uncertainty started to weigh heavy on them. How long will this last? What is actually happening? Am I at risk? Is my, are my parents at risk? And then I also think the idea of masks um, for students who or, and hmm. children who rely so heavily on social cues that when did get to go back outside and see friends or family or other people at the grocery store, half of the face was covered and you're so mm -hmm. heavily relying on people using their hands or their eyes or just speaking to them when you can't see how somebody's going to react to what you say. Mm. Being a middle schooler or an early high schooler and trying to navigate social situations, missing a key part of the way we communicate. Yeah. <sighs> exactly. Um, That's so. True. We were able to open up a hybrid program in September. And what we saw were the middle school and ninth graders return. Uh, parents wanted them in school, seeing other kids. We do have a large uh, class of seniors this year. Where what we saw when we opened our doors in September for a hybrid program is the seniors stayed home. They stayed home. They were able to navigate the program work remotely, and the students that really, really needed to be in person came in person. And then slowly we built up from there, but now we're kind of back at another benchmark where these seniors are struggling. Our seniors are struggling because they've been home an entire year. They're making commitments to colleges, and this life change is coming at their doorstep when they haven't been out in a routine and getting up and getting changed there are kids that log on, that wake up oh, 30, boy. 10 minutes before their class starts and they roll into class and they might be able to manage it, but there's no breakfast. There's no getting up and seeing anybody. There's no routine in, in commuting to school or to work. They've kind of lost this year and it kind of flew by in before them. 
And now this major life change is at their doorstep where within the next month or two, they're going to have to commit to a school when they really haven't left their house in so long. Every single student has been impacted in some respect from sixth grade through the 12th grade. So Fusion prides itself on developing personalized learning plans and one-on-one -on -one education. Could you walk me through how you go about creating a learning plan for a student and uh, assessing their needs? There's a lot of different components to that, but let's just start with saying the day that you enroll, you know, you would meet down and, or you would meet with me, we would talk. Um, we have a, an enrollment process where we start with an admissions meeting. Family typically sits on the couch, I sit in my chair, and I just wanna know everything about the student, the good, the bad, the ugly, how we can create a program. I wanna hear about teachers that you loved in the past, teachers you didn't love in the past, how you speak with your friends, what they would say about you if they were here, and build more than just, here's your transcript and these are the classes that you're going into. So right from the beginning of the enrollment process, we're talking about the human in front of us, the person, the student, what they like, what they don't like, and how we can make an accurate and the best match with teachers we can for the students. So within that process, we do need the transcripts, we need the immunization records, we need all of that, and that comes into play. Then we hold what's called a planning meeting. And within the planning meeting, all of the notes that I've taken and suggestions, I pass off to our director of student development, and she'll analyze the course requirements that they need. And then within the meeting, talk about electives that she would recommend based on the student in front of us. So we're first building the framework to work around who the child is and what will help them unlock their potential, find engagement in addition to the academics that they need to take. So if we have a student coming in that's really interested in science, we've got an abundance of electives for them to take and we'll consider those electives and match them with the teacher pairing, a teacher they will really get along with. From there, the student starts, they meet some new students, they talk with their teachers, but it's an ongoing review process where teachers can make suggestions throughout the semester for the student to then take in addition to. So that's just from a course planning standpoint within the classroom. If you can just grab them from the beginning and keep that open feedback of how is this working for you? Did you like this? Tell me about this. You know, and personalizing the experience for the student, of course, first assessing where they are. You don't want to make it too challenging right from, from the beginning. You know, one of the, the best things about being a teacher at Fusion is you're not painted into a corner with just your, your curriculum and that's it. It's flexible. And every new student you have, every learner is different and every learner has different interests. So when you're teaching the same class again, the way in which you go about it, because you've already personalized it for a different student, may lead to something even more beautiful within the subject. Maggie and I discussed uh, the importance of building rapport with students. I would say that is absolutely critical. You're not going to get anywhere with a student unless you have that rapport. You have to have the student's trust uh, because the difficulty of the material you're going to get into is going to require them to sort of reveal vulnerability. And that is like super hard for a teenager. You know, it's really a matter of, well, how do you develop that rapport with the teenager? How do you gain their trust? The formula basically is be really positive, find out what they're into and what you have in common. And sometimes that requires expanding yourself. Another thing that uh, Maggie and I talked about was who 
and how sort of the pandemic manifested with students. And she mentioned that it was sort of most obvious in kids that had already sort of been struggling with some, some things previous to the pandemic. Kids who are suffering from depression in particular have suffered a lot this winter. It's kind of taken its toll um, over time. It's, it's been the, the marathon nature of things. So I'd say kids with depression in particular, you know, have really struggled lately at the sort of at the end of this winter. I'm curious to get your take on what it's like for kids socializing online. Is there something lacking? And what, what do kids kind of need to develop those, uh, those skills that they're not getting? When you're talking about socializing, let's say joining the same game or something along those lines, Among Us is very popular right now. Our students love it. Um, but let's just take it from that perspective. It's fun and it's engaging, but it's not quite the socialization that is going to help them build the skills that they need. It's time consuming. It's something that they'll practice, something they enjoy. And maybe they play with their friends. Let's say if you get a group together of the people that you know and you play a game, that would be more rewarding because it's people you know. But there is something to be said about the last year and the access to the internet that this, that our children have had. They've never spent as much time on the internet and online as they did this past year. And that can be really dangerous. And here on campus um, throughout COVID, we had lunchtime clubs that student can, students could join. And that was great because it was faces they knew and people they would see. But there's places out there where they can get themselves into some trouble that lands that they, they don't even know what they're doing yet. And that that's pretty scary. I'd say that when it comes to remote socialization, if we're talking about using a camera and engaging similarly to having a Zoom party and having people meeting in that for our teens. I think there's potential getting together for game nights and connecting. One of the beautiful things is you had kids connecting with kids they haven't connected with in such a long time from across the country because they never thought of this platform before. So that's that's great. But I think there's there's two sides to it where it's it's you got to balance. You have to balance the amount that they're on and what they're doing and if it is helping them practice the skills that will benefit them. What are, you, uh, what are you guys kind of doing for kids who are sort of high anxiety students? How do you, how do you sort of manage that? Well, as, as you know, anxiety shows up in so many different ways. Um, so it's really, we do the exact same thing with our program where the approach that we take is going to depend on the student in front of us and, and the behaviors that we've seen. A big thing we see at the school that goes hand in hand is avoidance. The students that are highly anxious that maybe they left off last week and even if whether a class didn't go exactly as they wanted to or they created kind of a narrative in their head based on their perceptions coming back to a class on Monday can be very challenging. And what mm, we at Fusion yeah. do is we value every minute. Instead of a student logging on late and saying you're late, we flip it and say it's so good to see you even if we've only got 15 minutes left. Those 15 minutes are valuable because this kid showed up that's already mm. struggling. Mm. And if we can like find that. the value and validate it for them, reminding them that it was good that they showed up, not that they were 45 minutes late. Remind totally. them that it's good that they came at all instead of not coming at all. 
Absolutely. That's great. That's terrific. It's hard for every kid to be on time. I certainly wasn't on time to everything when I was, when I was that age. So, um, I certainly like that and keeping it positive, I think is so critical, you know, just getting back to that rapport that we were talking about before, which you guys call love. I think establishing that takes that genuine, sincere sort of positivity. Yeah, exactly. It's leading with empathy, putting your ego at the door before you come in and saying, it's not about me. When you're navigating anxiety with kids, you have to remember that the actions that they're taking, the behaviors that are manifesting, it's not them. It's not really them. It's the way that they're responding to a situation. So if you can leave yourself out of it, and just focus on them and lead with empathy, which just leave yourself out of it. Yeah, it sounds, sounds easy. <laughs> it does sound easy. But, it, you know, and that's that when when we hire somebody at Fusion, that's what we're putting out there and saying we are going to we work with some difficult kids sometimes and they don't mm. mean it. They don't mean mm-hmm. it. But how can you partner with someone who is seemingly difficult when they might just be going something going through something right now and not know how to express it? One thing we discussed in this segment was the importance of social emotional learning and how that's sort of been going during the pandemic. I think it's hard to make the case that that hasn't suffered, that hasn't taken a hit overall for kids. Basically every kid has experienced some sort of roadblock or bump or at worst total blockage when it comes to those skills. I don't know if anybody knows what these kids are gonna look like. If anyone says they do, I I think they're lying. This is a social experiment. What happens when you take a kid completely out of the social scene for a year, right? And then drop them back in again. I'm kind of curious to see what's gonna happen. Going forward, how do we balance social emotional learning with more traditional academics? Would you say that they are equally important? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I like to refer to it as a tripod where it's social, emotional and academic. And you can't have success with all three if one of the legs is not supported, um, whereas it has to be it has to be balanced, because what are we teaching our students to do when they leave us if we're just focused on the academics? We're not teaching them to work with peers or communicate with adults or advocate for themselves or be socially aware. We're not teaching them to do that. And after this, I think that COVID and the pandemic is a shared experience, which I think will help students coming through that adults Mm. had experience within them as well with COVID relate. And I think for a long time, it was hard for teachers to relate to their students, but this is a shared experience that we all have Mm. and we all navigated through and we know it was challenging. There is no, Mm. Mm -hmm. that is irrefutable. It was challenging for everyone. We had to do things that made us uncomfortable and, and, you know, tested us and tested our resiliency. And if anything out of this in the traditional model, we have that shared experience to refer to that understanding of our social and emotional needs are important in addition to our academics because we all had that experience. What can parents be doing at home, especially during this time, to promote social emotional learning in their children? I think that for the families that still have students at home remote learning, I think that you need to 
balance how involved you are. I think in the beginning as a parent, you wanted to help and you want to get them on track. You want to make sure they're here and, and doing this and doing that. But the students also need their independence. They need to mm. work through yeah. these things and these challenges and process. Whereas a parent, absolutely, you should be checking in with them. But being on top of them through it is not helping them build those resiliency skills. It's enabling totally. for them that you'll always be there. You know, we talked about going off to college and that gap. You're not there with them. <laughs> they need to, if anything, this is a, a run through of when they need to manage their schedule and their workload mm. and time mm. for this and be on time for that. Watch and make sure, but don't do, don't do it for them. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And for our students that are here in person, when they come home, being intentional to not just talk about what did you learn today or how was school, be more intentional with your questions. Ask about teachers, ask about content instead of these, these vague questions outside of the content areas. I think that more meaningful questions will show your child that you're listening to them instead of the, right. you're gonna get the good, you're gonna get the okay, but force them to communicate with you in an answer that's more elaborate than okay, eh, whatever. Yeah. Have a dialogue with them where they know that you're listening to them. And I think that's where parents can really play a really strong role for their kids. What age do you think that, um a kid should be expected to sort of manage their own like academic schedule, et cetera. Um, because I feel like parents have a hard time finding the line between like good luck kid and like, I'm going to like do your math homework for you. Like what age do you think that should be? Parents know their kids best. They know the, the child they're, they're raising and spend all this time with. Hmm. If I were to just put a, a number to it, I would say around the seventh grade, you should be practicing mm. with mm. your child, partnering with your child. Because fifth grade to sixth grade into middle school is a pretty big jump. And they're navigating that. So to still be involved to some respect is, is appropriate. But I'd say right around 12, 13, where you can loosen a little bit because it's not going to. You know, a, a B instead of an A is not going to kill them. Mm -hmm. It's okay. They can or a blown homework assignment, even that, you know, or a blown test. Yeah. The more opportunities that you can let your child safely fail and right. go through those motions and see what it feels like. It's safe. They're going to be okay. But let them miss that homework instead of you jumping in to save them. Save them. But talk to them about it, you know. And then as they get into high school and as they're going through the motions and they can manage their own schedule you know, checking in with them, still holding them accountable, but not doing it for them by the time right. they're in high school. They should be navigating for the most part, especially a sophomore and on, they should be navigating that for the most part mm -hmm. by themselves. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Thank you for giving that context because um, yeah. that's not in any parenting book that I've seen. Yeah. And, and I guess I should depend on your kid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's a good point. You know, it is relative depending on the kid. Let's look 10 years into the future. What does the future of education have in store, do you think? This pandemic was uncomfortable for educators. It was really hard for educators. And I do think that there's a silver lining in it all. I do think that in the end, we can ask ourselves, would we have stretched ourselves so far if we weren't forced to do it? Would we have ever been able to meet our kids at home when they need it? And 
I do believe that the answer is no. At Fusion, we had a, a great opportunity. We had a virtual program before the pandemic, so we leaned on it. But a lot of times we would use that virtual program for students that were undergoing uh, treatments. Um, so if they were getting treatments for Lyme disease or were too anxious to go to school and they just needed somebody to be the catalyst to get them back into the classroom. Sometimes it was just at the kitchen table and getting the laptop going first before they could physically get into school. And I think, you know, part of our mission is meeting our students where they are. And I think that also means physically, I think that also means that if the kid needs to be home to get started on their academics, that's okay. And I don't think that in the traditional mm -hmm. world that ever would have been an option. Um, and mm -hmm. I think the accessibility of education for students, I think that's the silver lining is that it has become, there are more options than what it's always been. My key takeaways from my conversation with Maggie are the following two things. Uh, first of all, we talked a lot about the pressures that are sort of on modern teachers. When you are you know, at least for private school teachers, and I'm sure this is true for public school teachers as well, and maybe even more so. They do dorm duty, you know, in some cases, they run after school clubs, they have administrative duties they do, they're deans, advisors, they have all sorts of, of terms for it, but I mean, the juice is just squeezed out of them. The system puts a tremendous amount of strain on the teachers that we have, and that's doesn't not have an impact on the educational experience of the entire generation. The other thing that, you know, Maggie and I talked a lot about was the benefits of one-on-one -on -one instruction versus being in a group. You can accomplish 10 times as much if you're working with a person one-on-one. -on -one. Any class, you're gonna have um, a variety of skill sets on a variety of levels, different personalities, beyond the sort of diversity of opinion, you're just sim you're simply gonna be challenged, you're gonna be limited by the things that you can do as a teacher, given the number of students you have. That's why class size is such an important statistic when people are shopping around for schools. To me, we need an altering course, and it's, and it's gonna happen eventually, organically, it's just really clunking along and taking a very long time. But ideally, if you had an ideal educational system for this country, and most of the jobs and careers right now are creative, you would have one-on-one -on -one instruction and the social components would be coming through other things like sports, like extracurricular activities through the community, community service, social groups, social housing even for older kids. That makes a heck of a lot more sense than the system that we have right now, which is incredibly inefficient, incredibly clunky, the teachers aren't happy, <laughs> the students are getting a shoddy education, and parents are losing their minds because they're stuck in between. Just one man's take, but this seems like a perfect opportunity to evolve or do. Thanks for listening to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that helps caregivers of anxious learners overcome obstacles to find academic success and build continuously happy lives. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. See you soon.